Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Um, my name is Kurt. It's good to see you this morning. And we are continuing on. We are at the very end of our message series in Numbers. Um, and just so you know, if you're not familiar with church or you grew up in churches, Numbers isn't a book that typically makes up message series in churches. Um, It's an early book. It's an old book. It can be a confusing book. Uh, But the reason why we decided to do this was um, a book called Bewilderments by an author, Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, was one that I saw was walking through PALS. I'm like, this looks fascinating, a whole book on numbers. And it was through that learning that numbers in the Torah is actually Bamidbar, which translates to in the desert of. And the whole story is about these in-between spaces where you're not where you used to be, but you're not yet where you're going. What does life look like in that space? Who is God and who are we? And so that's been really the focus of this whole message series. We've also been pulling up different stories and saying, what does this tell us about God and what does this tell us about us? Because ultimately, the Bible, whenever people are like, the Bible is this, the Bible is that, the Bible is 66 books written over hundreds of years by many, many different authors. The Bible isn't any one thing. But the consistent thread throughout all the Bible is it's a story about our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. And so when we pull out these stories, however odd or strange or they feel like they're pulled from way back when, when the time, the culture, everything is so different. What's beautiful is what we can see about the commonality between our experience now and their experience then. You start to see, oh, this is something consistent within human nature, and this is something consistent within the nature of God. So today we are going to be reading a story in Numbers 27. Uh, We're going to be reading about five daughters. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to pull it out. We're going to be reading, like I said, Numbers 27. Uh, If you have it on a document, if not, that's all right. We have it up here on the screen. So let's read some weird names together. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hepher, and son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tiza. And I like to say that with a Boston accent because it's more fun for me. I just imagine. They were like, you wicked, beautiful Milcah. I love you, Tiza. Um... They came before, they came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Okay, so let's set the, the scene a little bit. The Israelite people are nomadic, the entirety of the book of Numbers. So the central meeting place for all of them, they're meeting in lots of different tents around, but they have the tent of meeting. And early on in Numbers, there's lots of instructions about this is how the tent of meeting is set up. It's the church, it's the town hall, it's the center of their world and their existence. And so this is the place where they believe that the actual presence of God resides. It was over the tent of meeting that this pillar of fire at night, um, which we actually, Scott, illustrated there in the mask. You have that pillar of fire uh, right in the middle there that existed over the tent of meeting. The cloud that God was in by day existed over the tent of meeting. So this space is a very significant, important space. Imagine 
going to something like that and whatever your equivalent is if if you like it's it's city hall but it's like city hall and church and the concert venue like the rose garden if you could swirl all those into one that's the tent of meeting the reason why that's significant is when you go to those kinds of places if you've been walking around portland and you go by city hall you don't assume this is a space for me. I should walk inside. Unless you're elected official, which by all means, please continue to go in. But most of us don't assume, yes, yeah, City Hall is a place that I should go into. Or again, when you're walking by the Rose Garden or you're walking by a church, you don't assume this is a place for me to be if you're not a person that has power or a role or something that says you're supposed to be there, right? If you don't have a laminated name badge, it's not a place for you. The reason why I said that is going to that space at the very beginning is an incredibly bold act for these five daughters. Continuing on in verse 3, it says, this is what the five daughters say. I hope they said it all in unison, but maybe just one of them was the spokesperson. Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. Okay, so uh, going back, that Korah's followers in the Korah rebellion, that actually is the painting that Scott did with the mask. And that was the the story where uh, these men came up to Moses and Aaron and said, who put you in charge? Didn't God call all of us holy? We should all be in charge. And this is where the ground opened up and swallowed these people. What what the daughters are saying is our father has died, but he wasn't a part of that. Um, Meaning that if you're going to disqualify our request because you think, well, he made some poor choices, so this is your lot too. No, 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 no. That wasn't our father's call. That wasn't where he was. And what's interesting about their request and something that you may not pick up is they're not saying, hey, I don't know what you think, but if you think that we're just going to put this out here, see what you think, I don't know, but maybe we could get the land because we don't have any brothers. The way they frame that question is why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? That's not a rhetorical question. That's a question that puts the weight of decision on the people they're asking. What they're saying is the answer is clear. We deserve to have this property, this land. It's up to you to disprove our request, which again, this is not a meek request. This isn't someone out. They didn't send a spokesperson. They went together, stood in unity and said, the burden of proof is upon you, Moses, upon you, Eleazar, upon you, this whole assembly of leaders. Continuing on, Moses says, so Moses brought their case before the Lord and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Continuing on in verse 8, it says, Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, gives his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relatives in the clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of the law for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. So this is a significant moment because this is establishing a new law for the Israelite people. 
Um, and again, if we're tracking back in the story, we start with Abraham, an individual called out by God. We, we go through some sons, family line, but this is all very, very small. The moment it really starts to expand is Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat. He gets sold into slavery to Egypt. He rises to prominence in Egypt, overseeing the surplus of food for many years during a time of famine. And he brings all of his family over. They start multiplying in Egypt. This is why they're enslaved. So the reason why I say that is deciding how to give out inheritance of land for slaves isn't a hot button topic. This is a new conversation for the Israelites to talk about. They didn't own land. And when you're going through the desert, you can claim all the sand you want. No one cares. You're nomads. You're going to keep going. What's interesting about this is this is the first time they're talking about the land they will step into. And right before this, the reason why we call this book Numbers is they just did their second census of the entirety of the Israelites. What's important about that census where they're just counting up all the people is there are no people left from when they did their first census when they entered the land. A whole generation of people has passed in the desert, in this wandering, in this moving. And they talk about how you get land. One of the things that these daughters are doing that's so important is if you go back to the spies that go in and say, hey, we've seen this land. Look, we're like, it's the grasshopper painting up there. We're like grasshoppers to them. They could crush us. This is this incredible land that has all this bounty, but they're so much bigger and stronger than we are. We don't stand a chance. We probably shouldn't go into it. And because of that, no one has wanted to go in the land. That's why they went back into the desert. Harriet preached a great message on this. is actually this gift of kindness that these slave people, they weren't ready to step into the land yet. They needed more time to understand who God is and to establish who they were as a people. But this story marks the first time someone wants the land. Someone voices and says, we want to go into this land. Before this point, the only voice about this land is cowardice. The only voice about this land for the Israelite people is, I don't know that it's a good idea. This is the first time that these women are saying, no, we want this land. This land was promised to us. And they boldly go before Moses and everybody in the tent of meeting to call for it. It's such an incredibly brave act. And the other thing to note is this isn't the first time that people in the story of Numbers have requested something of Moses or of God. They've requested water. They've requested quail. They've requested any number of different things. They requested to go back to Egypt. What's interesting here, and we're going to talk about it in a little bit, this is the first time that God says, yes! Every other time, God's like, fine. <laughs> Which we don't always catch. It, there's, there's a yes in there, but what the yes means is different. This is a moment. The re and this is something that's important. Anytime in the Bible, you don't say like, yeah, they just got down, they wrote down some stories. No, they didn't, because that's not how we write down stories. We don't write down stuff that happens. The Bible isn't Dear Diary, this is what happened today. This is a selected moment from 40 years of a people's history. The fact that this story is included means it's very significant. 
it really, really matters. A bunch of other stuff didn't make the cut. A bunch of other stories didn't seem that they need to be told. So catching it and saying, what is, why is this here is important. And my encouragement to you is, when you read the Bible, that question should be operating in the back of your mind. Why is this story included? Don't assume like, well, yeah, it's supposed to be there. It says who? Who said it's supposed to be there? It's included for a reason because it's trying to tell us something significant. And if you glaze over it, we miss this deep, rich tapestry about who God is. This is how we learn about the nature of God. So, five women go to the leader, the center of power in their community, and ask this act of resistance to say the way that the law is stated now is not the way that the law should always be. There's a new way for this to operate. It got me thinking about different people in our somewhat recent history. Who has done similar actions? What does that look like? One of the first images that popped up for me is uh, this image right here. If you're a famous image taken in 1989, this is in Tiananmen Square in China. There was this huge movement in the late 80s in China saying that basically there should be a movement of democracy within the country. And, uh, and much in the similar to the ways that it happened in the United States during the 1960s, this came out of colleges, this came out of universities, this came out of march and protests that happened there. And what happened is there were huge gatherings that happened in Tiananmen Square, thousands and thousands of people. Early on in the movement, they were utterly ignored. But over time, they uh, declared martial law, and tanks and military came in to suppress and to move out um, the protesters that were there. This was at the tail end of the protest. Most everyone had cleared, and one lone man went and stood before a march of tanks. I love this image because I think it captures what these daughters of Zilliphad were doing. Now, this isn't to say that Moses was a military king who was just wiping out people before him, but it was an act of courage and many would call an act of defiance that brought something beautiful out of it. There's something really significant that happened. The other one uh, that I've been thinking about recently is Martin Luther King Jr., and I think a lot of us are, are familiar with his work. We have Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We talk about it. But I don't know that we always capture how um, provocative MLK was. One of the speeches that I've been reading and, and interested in is he gave this uh, sermon called Beyond Vietnam. It was in 1967. It was actually one year almost to the day before he was assassinated. Basically, what he said is he's one of the first leaders to come out and say, we should not be in a military fight with Vietnam. This isn't something that should happen. And what was interesting is up until that point, he was known as a civil rights leader. People were saying, what are you talking about Vietnam for? And if you go through the speech, he's saying that ultimately all of these things that are happening in our country, it's not just about what's happening in our country, it's what's happening outside of our country. America's role in the United States is informing who America is as a country. The next day after his speech, 168 major newspapers denounced him. He was uninvited by Lyndon B. Johnson from the White House the next day. 
it really spelled the end. He had been one of the most popular and influential characters in Gallup polls. He dropped off the list after that one sermon about Vietnam. He was saying there's something that's happening that we're kind of going along with, or we're saying, yeah, I, I think these things make sense about a war in Vietnam. And he was saying, no. This culture of war is impacting us, and these things are tied together. A march for freedom for people here within the United States should be a march in understanding for freedom of all people around the world. And he suffered greatly for that. Now, I think uh, as I talk about MLK in the picture, the one thing I want to go back to, because this is important, is a lot of times in history we talk about the great man theory. And it, it usually it's great man. Sadly, it's not great woman. It's uh, what it meant to illustrate is one singular person steps up and confronts it. That is an utter and complete lie. Any great movement that's ever happened that has one person that's a spokesperson for the movement comes from a whole flood of people. A bunch of people are a part of the movement. And they happen to capture the wave of this thing that's been happening and been stirred for years. As someone who studies the Bible and Christian history, Martin Luther posting his 95 Theses, it wasn't like he woke up one day and said like, hey, there's corruption in the Catholic Church. No, lots and lots of people were like, we're selling indulgences? You just like get less hell if you pay a lot of money? That doesn't seem right. Martin Luther just put a voice to it. A lot of these movements, it isn't just, we don't sit back and say, I don't know, I'm not famous, I'm not MLK. I'm not this lone protester in Tiananmen Square. What difference does my voice make? It makes all the difference. Because when people come together and recognize things, and, and this is what I would link, the things that are wrong. It's not just like, I don't like that. But the commonality here is what are the things that violate this idea of God's kingdom, heaven, come to earth? What would earth look like if God was in charge? Would there be any changes in our local and national government? Probably. I don't think God would show up and be like, oh, wow, nailed it. I have no work to do. I think God would have a lot to say. And so are we recognizing those levels of disparity? Where is it not in alignment? And how do we, how do we act towards bringing that alignment in? Because now it, it takes it out of just my personal preferences. Governments and agencies that are set up for personal preference usually harm someone at some point. This is the significance of understanding who God is and seeing God's kingdom come to earth. It's the only system that can really push towards the mutual thriving of all people. That's why it's so significant. And especially for Christians in the world today to be speaking out, to be recognizing things. And not just on huge government stages. I'm not just talking about the United States of America. I'm talking about at your places of work, in your homes. In your local Starbucks, <laughs> if there is an injustice that's happening around you, are you someone that will be a part of the movement to say this isn't God's best? The last one I thought of and want to talk about briefly is Gandhi. Uh, if you're kind of unfamiliar, Gandhi, through his long life, did lots and lots of movement. One of the things that was interesting to me that I didn't know, what was influential for Gandhi is he spent 21 years of his life in South Africa. 
He traveled from India to South Africa, and these were huge in his awareness and understanding of what was happening in India. His movement was basically to say that it shouldn't have British, uh, British control, and especially he did many, many hunger strikes. He led a passive movement, and what was so interesting is one of the things that he pushed back the hardest was they were changing the voting laws between the different castes. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a caste system that operates in uh, India. So whatever your parents are is what caste you're born into. And there's a whole caste of people which are known as the untouchables. They don't have voting power, don't have rights in so many ways. And what's interesting is Gandhi was not a part of that caste. He was a part of the merchant class. He was a higher caste of people, and he did his movements. He did his hunger strikes. He did his passive nonviolent resistance. Not passive. He did his nonviolent resistance as someone speaking out on behalf of someone that he wasn't. So why do I talk about all those different people? Because what Zillafit's daughters were doing has huge echoes into our world today and things that have shaped the world and culture we live in now. They ultimately were stepping up, not for themselves, but for a whole segment of the population that wasn't there. One thing to entertain is that this wasn't their only option. They didn't have to go to Moses and say, we need to change the system. They could have said, I don't know, that sounds hard. He might say no. Let's just marry a guy. I don't know. Well, we can find a guy, Right. We'll just get married. This is what people did during this time. This is what's common practice. You just get married, and now you can inherit that property. Now you have a husband. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to perpetuate a system that doesn't make any sense for the sake of perpetuating a system. Could there be another way? Could there be a better way to move forward? And so there's three things that I really want to hit on that, I, that kind of sums up what's the nature of God and what's the nature of humanity? What do we see about the ways we interact with ourselves and one another? The first is the, the word um, that God speaks is when it says that God said they have spoken rightly or they've spoken justly. It's kind of interpreted both ways. That word in Hebrew is ken. And ken translates to yes, at last. I love that. When they spoke out and said, this is the way it should be, God didn't say like, I don't know, compelling points, I guess. You know, it'd be more effort to push back than just to let them have it. God was like, finally, yes, at last, this thing is here for me to share with my people. We're taking a step forward that we need to take. Now, for some of us, you might say, whoa, 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 why would God say at last? I mean, couldn't God just change it? Couldn't God just make it be? Why would God have this sense of like, oh, it's about time? Uh, in the book I was talking about by um, Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, Bewilderments, this is the, the quote. All the woman's courage, their approach to the court, the ways in which they live their moment is already written before God on high. A number of different rabbis and teachers of this story is the way that they interpret it, and I love it that God has this reality. When God is in charge and God is ruling, these are the ways that things should be. And God wants us to have them. God wants us to live them out. And this is what's so beautiful. 
but God isn't establishing a kind of benevolent martial law. God isn't walking in and saying, all right, humanity, this is a mess. I'm going to take charge, all right? We're going to lead a heavenly coup. We're just going to take over, wipe out your systems, and put in the right good systems. That ultimately, God is partnering with humanity and us for us to see and realize. And the way that a parent doesn't just introduce all topics to their children at all times. Wait for your kids to have a question for heaven's sakes, right? We don't have to get into the nature of everything, but when they say, hey, I'm interested in this. If you're a parent, you do have these moments where you're like, at last, we get to talk about this thing. We get to have a conversation about these different subjects, about these different topics. The parent isn't withholding the information out of cruelty. You're not trying to be mean. You're just trying to say, we're going to give you this information when you're ready for it. And God's people were ready for it. And God says, at last, finally. I love this idea that there's God's law and God is desperate to bring it about. And I don't know that this was the final page ever written. I don't know that this was it. God's like, whew, I just had that one loose leaf of paper that didn't get dropped down in the Ten Commandments. I have it like guilt off my conscience. We still have more to go. That God's people continue to push and move in this direction so God can say, yes, at last, I want to show you what's already written. I want to show you the way that things should be. We want to continue this. So the first is that they speak Ken. Yes, at last. The second is I think it's important for us to see we need to listen to the voices outside of the centers of power because these ladies were the first ones to express a desire for the new land. So this is uh, something that was interesting. There's this great book written by James Davison Hunter. It's pretty thick and it's called To Change the World. And ultimately the book looks at how does any system ever change? And by studying history and looking at some different things, he identifies some really kind of not really surprising kind of common sense trends. One that he identifies in the book is that people at the centers of power who write history books, make laws, sit in positions that that matter, they get there because they benefited from the system that exists. That make sense? There has to be a system in place for you to kind of climb the ladder to it. And if you get to the top of whatever that ladder is, the system that currently exists has allowed you to get there. So your incentive to change it is very low. And so to say, if you depend on the people that are already at the centers of power to change the system, you will be waiting a very, very long time. What he identifies is that there can be a group of people, and this is what I love, going back to the thing I said, that great man theory, it kind of disproves it, is there's usually a cohort of people that have access to, inner, uh, to education, and they have access to relationship with one another. And they, they have access to power, but they don't have all the power. They're not in the center of the power position. So as the the two more recent examples we use, Gandhi and MLK are perfect examples of this. They had access. They were highly educated. They were incredibly articulate. They were very smart. They were in a wide network of relationships with people that had access to leadership. Go look at the people they were meeting with. You don't get a Nobel Peace Prize by being a total outsider. 
but they weren't so in the system that they couldn't speak to it in the way that they saw that it needed to change. There's this kind of theory that comes up is like, well, these people are in charge because they're supposed to be in charge, and so they'll keep us safe or they'll make the decisions they need to make. Well, they'll usually make the decisions not because they're evil or corrupt, but because they're human beings that will protect the systems that are. Why would they throw themselves out of those systems? So if we're only listening to the people in leadership positions now, we're going to get what we've always had. How do we not push for a kind of anarchy where we just throw off everything that exists is bad and everything that doesn't exist is good, but instead say, what are the voices just outside these positions of power? What do they have to teach us? What do they have to tell us? Because this wasn't a story that Moses was telling. And if you look at the system, you look at the structure, Moses couldn't tell this story. Moses didn't have eyes to see it. We need Zillafed's daughters to say this. And so when we think of our world today, when people outside the system say, hey, I think there's a change that could be happened there, and we shame them and we silence them, we're missing out on a new awareness where God's on the other side of that saying, yes, at last, let me show you what's already written. Now, does that mean that we hold every voice equal and every person that's not in leadership has something to say? You're like, that's a great idea. No, no, absolutely not. I remember working at Starbucks and we we're talking about different message series. And there's a guy who's like, I don't mean to interrupt. And I was like, you do. And it's fine. You <laughs> bet. <laughs> Clearly, you mean to interrupt. Uh, and he was like, I can't help but listening to your message series. And you know what I'd like to see? No one's teaching on the Nephilim. I'd love to see a whole message series on the Nephilim. Now, if you're unfamiliar, the Nephilim are at the beginning of the Noah story when it says that the men angels lusted after the women of earth, had children, and they gave birth to giants in the legends of old, which are called the Nephilim. It's literally one line in the Bible that's a part of a much longer story that is not about the Nephilim in any way, shape, and or form. And, and he was like, we should do a whole message series. Now, he didn't, he didn't create the system. He was someone that needed to be listened to. But it doesn't mean we just need to adopt everything that we hear from outside of the center of power, but they need to be heard because they're going to have a perspective we need not one that we should tolerate. Hear me. We need. If you're in positions of power in your family system, in your workplace, who are you listening to that's not? Not because it's the right thing to do or it's PC or you get in trouble if you don't because that's how healthy organizations move and grow. I would say, as we see in this story, this is how the kingdom of God advances. How are we prioritizing voices that don't have power so we hear and learn and listen? Last thing. I call this one the holy act of I. There's something about this where they're speaking up and they don't stand to gain nothing from the conversation. Right? They're not saying, hey, this is on behalf of someone else. This isn't quite what Gandhi is doing. They stood to inherit the land. But do you know the courage that comes with being able to voice and speak out the thing that you see and that you have? So many times, I think we have a view, we have an insight, and we think, I don't know, it's probably just me. 
It sounds kind of stupid. Why, why am I doing I should just go marry a guy, and he'll get the land for me, and it'll be fine. I think there's so many times we see things, we have insights, but we silence our own voice. We don't speak out. We don't say the thing that's there. And not violently and attacking and accusatory, but we just don't speak the viewpoint that we have because we think, well, it doesn't matter. To which I would say, you speaking your voice is an act of worship. God created you in this world because we need you. And we need your insights and we need your background and we need who you are in every way. When you silence your own voice, there's a way where we all suffer and lose out. Don't silence your voice. Don't silence your voice. Don't silence your insights because God might be on the other side of that insight saying, Ken, at last, let me show you what is already written.